Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting this morning from a windy, cool day here in West Kelowna, British Columbia. In today's episode, we continue our investigation into the actual science behind the Earth's ever-changing climate, continue to provide clear evidence to counter the the bogus mainstream narrative, and examine whether renewable energy sources have a realistic potential to power our nations. Today, we are very fortunate to have Dr. Cornelius Van Kooten from the University of Victoria joining us. Presently, he holds the position of Professor of Economics and Canada Research Chair in Environmental Studies and Climate in the Department of Economics. Dr. Kooten received his PhD in Agricultural and Resource Economics from the Oregon State University in 1982. Dr. Kooten has over 30 years of experience with interests that range from agriculture and forest economics to development, computational, and energy economics. He has published more than 200 peer-reviewed journal articles and some 40 book chapters, and is the author or co-author of five books on land and forest economics and the co-editor of three books. Dr. Kooten has been a consultant to various governments and government agencies, the United Nations, the World Bank, the European Union, and a variety of non-governmental organizations, including the International Fund for Animal Welfare and the WWF. His numerous graduate students have gone on to work in the private sector, academia, and government. He is a fellow of the Canadian Agricultural Economic Society and was awarded its Publication of Enduring Quality Award in 2011. Dr. Kooten, it is a real honor to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your time and welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Excellent. Good to have you. It's good to have a fellow British Columbian on the program. We haven't had uh, somebody on the local for a while now. Yeah. So well, uh, I, I come from the Netherlands and via a long time in Alberta. Okay. Okay. Well, it's you're 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 closer than most. Um, yeah. So, could you share with the listeners then uh, how you became interested in your field of study? Well, I've been uh, w- working uh, quite a bit in that area. I started uh, with a degree in physics and then switched to economics. And my uh, thesis in economics in my master's program was on coal, uh, partly because I had been part of the uh, Grand Cash Commission back in the, ooh, I don't remember what year. It was a long time ago. Uh, we were looking into, you know, they were doing underground mining at that time and they switched to uh, open pit mining. Uh, so I've always had an interest in, in energy and uh, resource economics, forestry, uh, that thing. And then uh, back, I was on faculty at the University of Saskatchewan back in the late 1980s when uh, I was approached about working in the area of climate change and uh, yeah, developed from there. Excellent. Excellent. And um, University of Victoria is probably known as a fairly left-leaning green university. Uh, any challenges in expressing your views there? Yes, it's been a challenge. Put it that way. <laughs> and and any real pushback or people uh, generally uh, sort of like Canadian and being polite in their... No, I've had a little bit of pushback, but I've had a great deal of support from within my department. Uh, my department's been great to me, so... Uh, yeah, I can't say anything but good about my experience at UVic. Well, that's good. So we're actually seeing some academic debate instead of just calling out and shouting down. Right. Yeah, there's some of that. Yeah, there's a little bit of both. But, you know, uh, I think it's gotten worse in the last uh, few years than it has in the past. Certainly, certainly. Um, and, and the Paris Agreement seems to be uh, more of a political tool for suppressing growth than an instituting global governance uh, over energy use and economic growth and, and the redistribution of wealth. Uh, what are your thoughts on this agreement? Well, I think it's, uh, it's an agreement that's certainly not going to do a lot to stop global warming. It'll do a lot to, uh, you know, raise taxes and uh, 
reduce economic growth, uh, particularly in the West. I don't think uh, many countries like China and India and uh, particularly Russia are going to take this seriously. And the, the developing countries, they're just looking for their handout, right? They want this $100 billion that they're supposed to get. Uh, but China is also in that lineup because China refuses to be classified as a developed country. They're still a developing country, so they're eligible for all these subsidies. And I don't think that's uh, going to go away. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's everyone seems to be gaming the system. I mean, if there's free money to be given out or, or subsidies to be handed out, people are there to take them. Right. Because under the uh, the UN's clean development mechanism that we got when we uh, put together the Kyoto Accord, uh, that clean development mechanism was used primarily by China to uh, build solar panels and solar uh, and wind turbines with the West contributing quite a bit of money to do that. So as a result, China has basically become the largest uh, uh, at least it's got the most capacity for solar and wind of, of most countries. Right. 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 And we paid for that. The West has paid for that primarily. So, uh, you know. As well as I believe they have 50% of the global coal-fired power capacity at the moment. Yeah, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but there's, they're uh, investing in more coal they're investing in so much coal that uh, what we're getting rid of, they're basically investing more in coal than what we get rid of. So if we get rid of 10 megawatts of capacity, they're building something like 12 megawatts of capacity. Sure. And, and are you familiar with that uh, that massive Hajoy uh, coal railway that's bringing uh, coal from, I guess, Inner Mongolia into their uh, the, sort of their industrial heartland? I'm not familiar with that, but I do know that they have a lot of coal that they mine themselves, and uh, and that's one of the reasons. I think China is doing the right thing. They're they're trying to balance the entire uh, energy that they use. Coal is something that they get domestically, although they do import it as well. Uh, they're they're now getting into natural gas through the fracking, and they're uh, they're trying to have you know lines that bring them oil and, and other products so that it's not dependent on one particular region or country. And that makes a lot of sense. Sure. I mean, that's a, a balanced approach, a good energy right. security policy. Yeah. 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 And don't forget yeah. their growth has basically enabled the UN to meet a lot of its targets regarding poverty. All right. They pulled uh, most of their country has now uh, gotten most people out of poverty, which you know, is a plus. Sure. I mean, that's, it is a, uh, I guess, an economic miracle going from 1976 when Chairman Ding um, visited the Carter administration. Uh, and at that point, uh, China was not much different than North Korea. And so that, uh, you know, 40 something or just shy of 40 year period, or sorry, just a little over 40 years, they've um, industrialized themselves. And like you say, brought a lot of people out of uh, abject poverty into a better right. standard of living. Right. So we can't blame China for this at all, but we can't blame any country, really. No, for sure. I mean, I think their policy of taking care of themselves and ensuring their energy security is, is what all nations should be doing and, right. and not, uh, you know, not looking at a, a solution which doesn't make any sense. Right, right. So just um, if we get some, I guess, some short answers on the following section here, um, you know, is, is planet Earth experiencing a climate emergency? 
I would say not. All right. If I look at some of the research that's being done by people like Will Happer and and many many others, uh, you know, uh, I personally just don't see it happening. Uh, a one degree increase since the last little since the little ice age. So from about 80, 1850 today, the price the the average global temperature has gone up by one degree. I don't see that being an emergency at all. If we go another degree. I'm not sure that's going to be an emergency either. Yeah. And I, and I certainly, you know, w- one thing that uh, Dr. Happer uh, said in my interview, and he, he said it uh, before, is that we should be focusing on real pollution. Uh, rather than, you know, vilifying CO2. And I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, there is definitely a lot of toxic substances which is which have been released into the atmosphere and certainly the internal combustion engine burning poorly or, or a diesel engine that doesn't have a particulate filter is contributing to air pollution and sickness and disease and right. we need to address that. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. That's, uh, but most of these coal-fired power plants now, they the only stuff they're releasing into the atmosphere is CO2 and steam, so water vapor. Yeah, and a bit, uh, a bit of nitrogen. You know, it's, it's, down. Some of the older ones, I, I did. A, I looked at coal-fired power plants all oh, about five, six years ago, and they were still operating ones in the U.S. that were built in the early 1900s. Wow. So you can imagine how inefficient those were, and uh, because coal was so cheap. But then with the gas prices going down due to fracking, uh, they got rid of a lot of those old coal-fired power plants. So that that in and of itself has been a big improvement. Sure, sure, yeah. absolutely. And then, so, you know, based on the research that you've done, are we warming or cooling, or is there sort of just a, you know, there's not really a definitive trend there? Yeah, there's no definitive trend. I've seen I've seen one study which uh, showed that there there was just a blip, an upward blip in the, uh, at a particular period in time, it just sort of, so you had a trajectory that was pretty well flat, and then there was an upward blip, and then it stayed flat again in sure. temperatures. So I, I'm not sure. I'm not an expert in that. I, at one point, I looked at these paleo uh, analyses that they did and uh, basically the hockey stick because there was so much controversy. And after a while, I figured that one out. And But I didn't really, really understand it until um, that uh, physicist down in, the, uh, in, in Berkeley, I forget his name off the top of my head, uh, he, he had a a video on uh, YouTube, and it basically demolished the the hockey stick uh, graph completely. Sure, I, I found that kind of interesting. Yeah, and I guess you know it also depends on the time frame that you're looking at. I mean, if we again Absolutely. we go back to the the Maunder minimum, you know, let's say if we look, let's say 1650 to today, yes, there's been warming, yeah. but if we that point is also a you know very low point in our temperature history, and if we go back. 400,000 years or 800,000 years, we're on a cooling trend. So it's, uh, you know, right. where, do you, where do you decide to take that uh, that snapshot? Yeah, yeah exactly. So if, if anybody really wants to know uh, a good source, I think Conan's book, Unsettled, is a, is a good place to kind of figure these things out. And, and that's Conan as a C-O-N-A-N? K-O-O-N-I-N. Okay. Stephen Cohen. Stephen Cohen. And he, okay. and he was um, uh, one of the science advisors in the Obama administration. Okay. So we can and trust he's him? not by any means a, sci- a climate denier or climate skeptic. I'm maybe a bit more of a climate skeptic than he is, but I'm not really 
uh, a climate skeptic in the sense that uh, I I do believe that humans have some impact on uh, on on temperatures. Uh, and I look at my ag background and I think, well, if you have a field, a dark field that you're leaving fallow for a year, and you have a field next to it that's not fallowed, then the, you're going to get a lot more warmth coming off of the field that's been fallowed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something, and I have I've yet to hear from, uh, you know, the preeminent physicists that I've spoken with. Uh, and what you, I think what you're referring to is the albedo effect of various surfaces. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we, we do have a pretty good history, particularly in Honolulu, if we look back 40 to 50 years, where it was a much smaller center, there was less concrete, less uh, pavement, and right. the temperatures would be 26 to 28 degrees Celsius. And fast forward to present, where we have all these uh, you know tall buildings and a lot more pavement, and we're up into the mid thirties. Yeah. And and so, how do those heat islands then affect? You know, it's, I guess it's not really affecting climate because the climate would be somewhat separate from that. Um, no, but what we, it does is it affects your temperature reading. Yes. Okay? Yes. So what you what you get is you get an increase in temperature, and then uh, the climate scientists and people who deal with these temperature data, they try to then make a correction for that. And there was a paper that Ross McKittrick actually did a number of papers on this, looking at whether or not they had actually corrected for it. And it turned out that no, they had not. Yes. That the corrections they made were not uh, removing or homogenizing the data as they claimed it was. He yeah. was still finding that these urban heat islands were having an impact on uh, temperatures. Sure. Sure. And I, and I think that's the thing to focus on, uh, you know, our effect. And of course, um, all of our machinery is generating heat, uh, the, our cars, our right. you know, livestock, yeah. even even us. I mean, there, there's definitely yeah. some, when you when you increase the, the heat output in a closed system, it, it has to go somewhere. It, it's not, right. it doesn't yeah. magically disappear. Right. So, and then, and then CO2, in your opinion, is, is that a, a, a toxic substance or a pollutant? Well, as an agricultural economist, it's not toxic at all. You need it to grow plants. In fact, if you drop much below 200 uh, parts per million, uh, then you can't even grow crops anymore. Yes, yes. And of course, we, we have, <clears throat> excuse me, we have seen a greening of the earth uh, for over the last right. 20, 30 years. I mean, that's yeah. uh, from the from the satellite data, we see that there has been a positive effect from this increased CO2. Uh, and from your agricultural background, um, can you comment on the increased CO2 levels and drought resistance in plants? Um, yeah, that's, I don't think there's a link there. Okay. I don't know, I don't know but... Uh, it seems uh, you have to distinguish between C3 and C4 plants. Yes. And and there's now a debate in the literature as to whether or not as you increase the uh, CO2 level, whether it's C3 plants, which benefit in current, in, in the current increase that we've experienced. And those are your, your main crops. And C4, those are your main uh, uh, weeds. And the question is, as you get to these higher and higher levels of CO2, and we're talking about double what we have now, so 800 parts per million or something like that, then uh, there's the argument that maybe it flips over. So C4 mm. crops are then, or C4 plants benefit more than C3 plants. Right. And, right. Uh, but overall, right now, we're benefiting. And if you look at greenhouses where they grow marijuana or other things, uh, they pump a lot of CO2 into those greenhouses to encourage plant growth. Sure. So from uh, that point of view, 
you know, it's been a benefit to society. In fact, some people have argued, and I've seen data that 18% uh, of the green revolution was due to uh, increased CO2 in the atmosphere. Yeah, I was actually reviewing a G is it GWPF document yesterday when they were the the author was highlighting the fact that the crop yields have actually increased over the last thirty years and attributed right. uh, in part some of that increase to the plant's ability to to uh, photosynthesize more efficiently with the higher CO two. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if you and look so at the, if you look at crop yields over time, and we're talking yield, so the amount of of grain per hectare, say. Yes. Uh, then uh, they've been increasing steadily. And this year they're supposed to be even higher than they were uh, in the past several years. You know, Interesting. It, it grows so much more on, on the land. Interesting. So um, then reducing CO2 from our present levels really doesn't have a benefit then to human civilization. Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Okay. And... Um, these temperatures, you know, we're, we're some sometimes we hear in the in the in the mainstream media, uh, unprecedented, uh, you know, runaway. We hear sort of these 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 comments about our temperature. Um, in, in your opinion, are we are we experiencing this rapid rise? No, we're not. Temperature? If you look at the IPCC reports themselves and the scientific literature, there's no runaway uh, temperature increases occurring. Yes, and okay. of course we. We've seen uh, delta T's in the 10 to 15 degree centigrade rate over the last 50, 150,000 years during a number of uh, incidences on the globe. Uh, so, you know, the globe has survived, the animals have survived, the fauna has survived. Absolutely, uh, yeah. 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 It's, we it's, see that now with polar bears, right? We're finding that the polar bears do okay without ice. Sure, sure. Well, I think some of that as well is that the, the hunting has been reduced. Um, and there was, uh, I guess, right. one of the native... I think, I, I think the rebound on the population is simply because the hunting has been reduced. Yes. And there, there's like the, there was a native group uh, that met in Churchill, Manitoba, and they were actually calling for an increase in the hunter allocation because the bears are, are getting to the okay. point where they're now climbing into people's houses and, you know, running off with their children or grandmothers. And so they're, they're, yeah, yeah it's not that, but yeah, they don't want <laughs> the bears, they, too many bears there. You're right about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and certainly, uh, you know, uh, eight foot tall at the shoulder polar bear staring through your kitchen window while yeah, you're having you coffee in the morning. <laughs> That's a disconcerting situation. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in the past, when we look through the literature, these warming times have been called climate optima. Are, is, is a warming trend beneficial for humanity or, or is a cooling trend uh, better for humanity? Yeah, there's, there were two books written. Uh, uh, well, this was probably 10, 15, 20 years ago. One was on the Little Ice Age and the other one was on the medieval warm period. And the author made the comment, uh, he, he demonstrated that during the warm periods, there was less uh, tension, less international tension, uh, fewer wars, fewer uh, disasters along the lines of a black plague or something like that, that the warm periods were actually better for civilization. Now, he wrote the warm period book after the ice period one. And uh, the interesting thing is that he then concludes, after all this, he concludes that because of climate change, we have to prevent warming. Even though it's demonstrated that warming was actually beneficial to the global society, you know, in terms of reducing tensions and, and reducing illness and all this kind of stuff, which I found very interesting. 
that may have been some pressure on behest of the publishers. Yeah, it was in the final chapter, right? And I thought, okay, somebody uh, put some pressure on him to change the conclusions a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then some of the recent research coming out, and, and Willie Soon has just published a paper as well, uh, looking at the solar flux and the uh, the sunspot cycles, which indicates that we may be coming up to a modern grand solar minimum. Uh, have you uh, seen any of that information? I've I've looked at that information, yeah. And, and yeah, that, I mean, basically, the argument is in the global or, or the warmists, if you like to call them that, uh, they argue that there's one control knob and that's CO2 and we're warming and the sun has no influence. Well, it has an influence, but it has it doesn't change that influence. And if you argue that, then uh, whatever Willie Soon does is, is kind of, so it kind of, they don't wanna hear that. They don't like to hear it. They assume it's wrong because this, the sun doesn't change that the amount of radiation that we get from the sun varies very, very little. And if you look at the, as, as far as I can tell in the IPCC report, uh, the sun solar flux is taken at 0 0.05 watts per meter squared, which is very, very small. So in other words, uh, when you look at this science, the so-called science, they argue that the sun really has no impact on changes in the uh, climate, which of course is nonsense in my view, because somewhere along the line, how do we get all these changes before CO2 became an issue? Well, and I would also argue that those people have probably never experienced the transition from winter to spring, spring to summer, right. summer to fall, fall to winter. I mean, that's if that's caused right. if that's caused by a slight uh, modification of the the, the exactly. distance to the sun, and we see such radical differences, then. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, and of course, when we look back in history at the reported sunspot data during the Maunder minimum, uh, you know, the, the paper that uh, soon just produced looks like we are headed into a similar period, which will be at its maximum somewhere between 2030 and 2050. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I don't know what impact that's going to have on temperatures. All I know is that uh, temperatures just haven't gone up at all recently. Yeah, you know, yeah I mean, they keep saying that this is the warmest year, but it's by 0 0.01 degree or something. Well, that's, you know, as a scientist, you have to look at what the air band is and that falls within an air band. So in other words, you can't definitively say that the temperature in 2020 was, was warmer than 2019 or even 2008 for that matter. Yes, yes, okay, yes. You're just falling in that air range. And, and, you know, it seems like the IPCC, they, they've spent billions of dollars or, or, or been donated billions of dollars. They continue, continue to produce uh, these models. I think they're into 80-something models now. Uh, not a single one of them has been correct to date. Uh, why does anybody look at well, these models? that's not quite and... true. Apparently, the Russian model tracks pretty well what's, what's observed. Okay. I hadn't heard that. But that's yeah. not the official IPCC's... Um, model that they well, released. They do use it, I think, uh, in in their uh, ensembles. I think the Russian one does show up. Okay. Uh, but the okay. person who told me this also told me that the Canadian one is the highest. So in other words, it doesn't track it at all. Well, that wouldn't surprise me given our leadership here and their uh, alarmingly yeah. left-leaning policies. 
So um, we, we sort of discussed briefly the the Paris Climate Accord and, and uh, you know, what are the economic or socioeconomic ramifications of, of really reducing CO2 emissions by 50% for the Western world? Well, to me, that's a disaster, an economic disaster. What, what you got to do is you've got, I mean, the changes that are required to the way we live are just enormous. But most countries kind of have an out. They think they have an out. And they all look to, Canada, for example, looks to forestry. And almost every country that has any level of forests looks to forestry for a, a way out, so to speak. Um, so Canada, for example, because of the uh, mountain pine beetle experience, it says that we will uh, count anything that uh, that we grow. So in other words, if we plant trees and they grow and we count that carbon as a, a positive in meeting our target. However, if there's a wildfire or other natural disturbance that causes a release of that CO2, we will not count it. Mm. Right? That's in their Paris Agreement. Now, what's interesting there is then what you want to do is you want, if you have a wildfire, you don't want to suppress it. You want to let it run its course, denude as much as you can, and then replant trees and get credit uh, for, the, for the trees that you've planted. Other, other countries are relying on carbon capture and storage, and we are as well, uh, which is an unknown technology at this point. And it requires about 25% of what we call parasitic heat. In other words, if you've got a coal-fired power plant just to get rid of the, or to get the carbon out and uh, push it along into a place where it can be stored, requires an amount of energy that's about 25% of the energy that you produce to get the electricity. Hmm. So if you're producing uh, 100 megawatts of uh, electricity, you need to actually produce 120 megawatts to take care of the, and and even at that you're only getting 70 to 80 percent of the carbon capture storage, right. so it's not totally emissions free. So yeah, I, I just don't see how we can get it. If we look at uh, at uh, an interesting um, item I came across by Vaclav Smeal. he argued that, or he points out that there's more energy to produce a, an iPhone than to produce a car. Really? And, and why really? is that? Because these rare earth minerals that you need for batteries and for all those other things, they're quite plentiful in the world. But the problem is they're, they're not concentrated. For example, if, you have, if you're looking for coal, you've got a coal seam, right? And you can go in there and, and mine it out and everything else. But for these other minerals, you have to remove so much of this overburden and sift through all of this uh, over this other stuff that uh, in order to do that requires huge amounts of energy just to get these minerals out of the ground. Interesting. And uh, as a result, because they use so much more of these specialty rare earth minerals, cobalt and all this kind of stuff that um, you basically use more energy to produce those, to put them into a phone than you do the kind of stuff that you put into a car. Interesting. Which I and, found a very interesting point, but and that's, that's right. And, and that's the thing that people don't realize that when you're building these wind turbines and these solar panels, you've got, you know, it's not energy free. 
That's right. And that's, that's interesting because I've actually been looking for a researcher uh, to chat with who has done this, uh, you know, kind of complete uh, energy uh, uh, blueprint of, of what it takes to produce, let's say, for instance, a solar cell, you know, and then look at how many watts of energy that's able to produce. So essentially an energy efficiency calculation where we take the sum total of the lifespan of that product to, right. to, manif- to, to, to mine it, to manufacture it, and then what is it going to actually yield? And then the same would apply to, uh, you know, batteries for use in an electric car right. versus, you know, and then compare that to a gasoline-powered or, or hybrid uh, vehicle. Where do you come out with the energy efficiencies at the end of the day? Right, right. That's, uh, I'm not sure if I, I've seen some stuff, but I've kind of glimpsed over, glanced over it rather than get into the details on it. But uh, yeah. if you look at an electric vehicle, for example, it weighs twice as much as the regular regular vehicle that you'd have otherwise. Sure. All right. And then the question is, okay, where, where do the savings come about? And we don't know enough about electric vehicles. They, they haven't been around long enough. If you think of uh, some of these uh, Toyotas, I drive a Toyota, it'll go 500,000 kilometers. It'll last me, you know, maybe 20 years you could drive it electric vehicle they haven't been around for 20 years sure you know and at mass produced that is and you know how are these things going to be and how do you recycle these batteries and how do you you know deal with that and how often do you need to change those batteries because we all know with our phones that when you first get them you could you know go for two three days without charging them but as life goes on that you have to recharge them every day and yes. sometimes twice a day. And so these batteries are less and less efficient in holding the charge. And, and that happens with these batteries as well. But, sure. you know, and then I wonder if you're living in Alberta, they're, they're gonna have snow today is the, or tomorrow is the forecast in Edmonton. And uh, the question is, it's cold. So you have to run a heater on that uh, battery as well. And if you're driving a long distance, uh, you know, that's gonna shorten your distance that you can travel. For sure. And so you have all these problems to go with. Then with wind turbines and solar panels, you've got worries about what happens at the end of their life cycle. So after 20 years, we worry about that with nuclear power plants. But these uh, wind turbines and, and solar panels have just as much uh, uh, waste that's toxic as a nuclear power plant. In fact, more so because there's so much uh, stuff there. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and we'll get into that discussion later in the interview because I want to talk about the uh, the capacity factors and how that also weighs into that uh, the equation of looking at those various sure. uh, supplies. Yeah. And, yeah. and I mean, and since, since we're on this topic, just before we move on, I mean, I think there's an application for solar, particularly in a non-distributed fashion. If, if you know, if you want to have solar panels on your roof or your backyard, right. um, yeah. I think that makes sense. But, you know, utilizing massive... Uh, space, which could be either, either recreational or agricultural land to have a solar panel farm and then distribute that power, that doesn't make any sense. Right. I just I just read something today that 20% of British uh, farmland is supposedly going to be covered with solar panels in order yeah. to meet their 50% uh, renewable energy target. 20%. Yeah. Yeah. So it could yeah. be importing the food. 
Yeah, that's 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 madness. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it it doesn't make any sense. You're right. Yeah, and so then if if we compare the annualized carbon production of let's say India and China uh, to the Western nations, if the Western nations you know attempt to get to this fifty percent reduction, is that going to have any uh, impact on global CO two levels? Well, global CO two levels are going to rise. Period. If we think of human, uh, if the CO2 is all human caused. I'm not totally convinced it is, but let's say it is. Uh, then you've got China currently producing so much CO2, it's the number one CO2 producer in the world by far, way above the US now. And India is starting to approach the US. In fact, uh, it may have even just surpassed the US in terms of uh, CO2 emissions. And then you've got Africa coming behind that if they can ever get their act together and, and you know, row the way they're supposed to. And then you've got other countries in Southeast Asia. And I mean, let's face it, where the population is, is not in North America or in Europe. It's elsewhere. And, and as those areas become uh, richer, and the only way they can get richer is through energy. And the cheapest energy is coal. Uh, you can't very well take these large wind turbines and put them up anywhere in, in a lot of places in Africa because you just can't take those blades. There's no not enough transportation Roads. corridors that can handle those things. So you're limited, right? And I think you're right. If you put a solar panel in, uh, in a local area, that makes a lot of sense. But to try and put it on a utility scale is really, really difficult. Yes, yes. And so what are the economic implications then for the West if we continue to move towards this uh, unreliable renewable energy paradigm? Well, that's that's a bit tricky. That gets a little complicated. It depends on the kind of market that the uh, electric system operator uses. And that's where I've been doing most of my work. And don't forget, electricity on a global scale is only 25% of energy. Okay. All right. So that means that that if you get your electricity to the point where it's it's totally based on renewables, what about the rest of that 75%? Now, while some of that will be transferred, like uh, transportation, supposedly, well, everybody will be driving an electric vehicle. So then, uh, you know, you've increased the amount of, uh, you, you basically increase the load by a huge amount on your electrical system. All right, but transportation itself only accounts for 14%. So let's say you move 10% of the transportation onto, because you can't use electricity on uh, large trucks, very difficult to do. Uh, you airplanes. Know, been, airplanes, you can't, you know. Uh, you'd have to have such a massive uh, increase in weight that uh, you'd never get it into the air. Um, but so at best, then you've got 35% is electrical. So now you've got to also, okay, that's your transportation part. And that assumes 10% of, of, of the 14 can be transferred over. So that leaves, you know, things like heating, maybe space heating, you become electric, but that would increase the electricity load. And even though even you're limited in doing that. Um, so our focus is on electricity. So can we go to total renewables on electricity? So one of the things my students and I did, we said, well, let's try look at the Alberta grid because Alberta provides pretty good numbers and, and we're local, right? We don't try to 
get the numbers on the ERCOT Texas grid or something like that. And then you have to think, okay, if we go total renewables on the Alberta grid, so that's what we decided we'd do. And we got data on wind and solar for Alberta. And we said, okay, we can let's run it and see if we can meet our load, the Alberta load, the hourly load using wind data and solar, using wind and solar um, energy. And it turns out, no, you can't. Well, I wonder if we put in a battery. Sure enough, you can put in a battery, but the battery had to be so big that it basically basically covered, you know, thousands of acres. And we're talking a Tesla type battery that they use in uh, in Australia. Well, we could not. The problem didn't solve. The battery was just too big. So we said, okay, let's let's look at uh, including some gas. Well, as soon as we had the gas in, the battery shrunk. We still had a battery going in. It wasn't very big because we needed it, but the gas came in almost as much gas had to be put into the system in terms of capacity as wind. So let's say you put in 10 megawatts of wind capacity, you needed somewhere about eight to nine megawatts of gas in order to back it up. And the rest would be taken care of by the battery. Very expensive to do, but the biggest problem was your gas plants, nobody would invest in them. Nano. So the question is, what kind of market are you operating? You have a choice to operate an energy market as they do in, in uh, Texas, where you're not concerned about that. You say, well, the gas plants will come in because you know at some point the price will be so high that they'll have to produce the gas and the gas plant will then pay for itself. But it doesn't happen that way. So there's no incentive to build these gas plants as backup. And that's what happened in Texas. And to make things worse, Texas had an agreement with a variety of different uh, large manufacturing, large electricity users to shut down if there was an emergency where they didn't have enough electricity. The problem is that one that a number of the plants that they shut down were ones that produced gas. Oh. So they didn't they didn't know whether plant A was a gas plant or B was a gas plant. You know, they thought, okay, B is maybe a manufacturing facility, like an automobile plant or something, but they shut down gas plants. And the gas plants without electricity couldn't deliver gas. So, so in other words, the whole system just blacked out. Wow, wow. Uh, and so Texas problem, but in Canada, going back, so we, so what you need is a capacity market. All right. So what happens is wind drives down the price, wind and solar, because they're cheap. They drive down the price at any given time. So one says, well, that's a good reason for implementing that. Yeah, fine, but it's the wholesale price that's driven down. So you, so that's your energy market. You also have to have a capacity market for this backup stuff. So in other words, these you, you have to pay producers of gas plants or, or gas plants, you have to pay them to just be there in case. And once you include that particular cost, 
then your price at the retail level is higher than it would be otherwise. So that's why you're seeing these high prices in uh, in Germany and, and these other places where they have wind. But it's worse than that because you have to pay the wind producer some guarantee. Because remember the price, when you, when you bring in the wind, the price drops. Well, if it drops too much, they, these wind producers can't even cover their costs. So in other words, you have to give them a subsidy to get them to produce the wind. So now you're subsidizing gas plant capacity just to exist, and you're subsidizing wind prices in order to get them to produce the wind farms and the, and the wind turbines and the solar even. So in the end, yes, your wholesale price goes down, not always, it could go up depending on whether the wind is blowing or the sun is shining. But your retail price goes up because into the retail price, you have to include the subsidies for wind and the subsidies for gas capacity. And that's been the problem in, in all these countries that have been going big time wind. Mm, interesting. Now, if we look at Alberta, for example, what happens is where do you want to put your wind turbines? You want to put them all around Pincher Creek. And the reason is this gets to your capacity factors. All right. At Pincher Creek, we're finding we found that at times we had a 70% capacity factor for a long period of time. You don't get that anywhere. Hmm. So if we go to Lethbridge, which is what 150, maybe 100 kilometers to the east that same 70% drops to all about 30% capacity. And by a capacity factor, we simply mean if you've got a wind turbine that's rated at one megawatt, let's say that it could produce at its best one megawatt of power, then there are times when the wind isn't blowing enough, so you don't get one megawatt, you get something less. And there are times when the wind isn't blowing at all and you don't get any power at all, or the wind is too fast so that you have to shut down your turbine because otherwise it will blow your turbine. So a capacity factor of 0.7 means that on average over a year, you can produce 70% of that one megawatt. However, most capacity factors vary from day to day, from year to year. And in the in the uh, Pincher Creek case, they varied all the way from for one year period from about 25 to 30% to a high of, of just about 50 to 60% for an entire year. Now, 50 to 60% for a year is, is phenomenal. So guess where we find all these turb wind turbines in Alberta? <laughs> Around Pincher Creek is where they most are. All right. Now, if you put them anywhere else in Alberta, you don't get the same bang. You're looking at 20%, even up in the in the Peace River country, we were finding, you know, 15 to 20-25% at the best, depending on the year. And the worst thing is we did find that there was a correlation between them. So, in other words, if the wind wasn't blowing in Pincher Creek, it wasn't blowing in Grand Prairie either. So, in other words, you couldn't put a whole pile of these wind turbines up in Grand Prairie to cover things if the wind was not blowing in Pinch Creek or vice versa. 
Sure. And, okay. and then, so, so how, how do the capacity factors of our traditional, let's say, gas plant or a coal-fired plant, where, where are the... Well, it depends on the gas plant, right? You've got two kinds of gas plants. You've got a, a what's called an open cycle or a, a simple gas turbine, which is similar to what you get on a jet engine. All right. You push the gas and you get more electricity, you release the gas, you get less. Uh, but... But if you go, for example, if you go in your home and you got that uh, exhaust pipe on your roof and you feel that when your furnace is on, you're going to burn your hand, right? Well, uh, what happens with a, a combined cycle gas plant, because with the, the simple cycle or the open cycle gas plant, you, you'd get that same exhaust, it'd be hot, right? But with a combined cycle, you'd capture that and heat a boiler with it and you'd get more, get more electricity produced that way. So you get produce electricity from the uh, uh, turbine and then from the the boiler, you could say. And those kind of plants differ because the, the simple cycle one is basically used for peak load because it can, it can go up and down real quick. But the combined cycle one takes a little time to ramp up and down and to follow those uh, loads. So there's a cost to ramping it up and down and coal-fired power plants are the same they're very efficient uh in staying at a particular production level and moving slowly up or down so the capacity factors on coal plants are somewhere around 80 85 percent uh we often assume they're a little higher but they're about 80 percent 85 uh the same thing is true for nuclear power plants uh they're running maybe 90 percent capacity factors. So in other words, they're on most of the year. They don't vary that much because they can't. It's it's hard on the equipment and it, it costs money. And, uh, you know, there's an optimal range where the fuel use is such that it's optimal in a coal-fired power plant, for example. Uh, if you get outside that range, it costs you more in terms of both CO2 and in terms of uh, cost of energy to produce the electricity. So that's one of the things that uh, people forget. When you bring these wind turbines in, all right, you're basically saying to the coal-fired power plant, okay, you've got to reduce your electricity output to make room for this wind. And to do that, you, um, you're basically increasing the cost of producing electricity from the coal-fired power plant. So yes, wind turbines are cheap, and solar panels are cheap if you only look at their operation. But if you take into account their impact on the existing assets, then the costs are much, much higher. And that's the effect of bringing that intermittent power into the grid and, and the effect right. on, the, on the baseload yeah. generation. Yeah, yeah. You're affecting the baseload generation. You're affecting even these simple cycle gas plants. Uh, some of the literature refers to it as the missing money problem. In other words, you don't get enough money. You don't operate your plant long enough no. to uh, to get any money to put against fixed costs, etc. All right. Now in BC, we have uh, we have one big gas plant in in the Burrard Inlet. There is a huge gas plant, uh, and that one runs anywhere from five to twenty hours a year. Oh well. It doesn't run very much, but it's needed at those points. At one time, they tried to to close it down. That may operate a few more hours, but at one point, they tried to close it down, but uh, now they needed that for the backup. 
And, and sorry, just, just to dial back, uh, what was the capacity factor on those gas plants? Well, the gas plants, uh, depending on which one, the combined cycle ones would run about the same as coal plants. Okay. All right. But these other ones would run very, you know, their capacity factors would be quite low simply because they're they're meant to cover these peak times, right? When uh, when you can't quickly bring it up. And that's why they're needed with, um, you either need battery storage or you need a gas plant. All right, one of these open cycle gas plants to back up the wind. Right, right. Do it. And then I guess this disruption is not only to our present uh, power cap- power generating capabilities, but it would also be related to new construction of these gas plants or oh, absolutely. Other, other baseload. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And of course, the incentives for producing a lot of these uh, gas plants, as I mentioned, is gone. So in other words, you've got to pay them to, to put in the capacity for the few hours that they run. And then I guess hydro is the only real kind of base load which provides that flexibility to be able to dial up or dial down. Right, right. Uh, hydro is your nicest, right? Because you just open and close the door to the water flowing down through the turbine. Yes. But there again, it's a bit vulnerable depending on what kind of hydro and, and how big your uh, reservoir is. And uh, a lot of these ones, like the ones in Alberta, run on uh, what are called run-of-river facilities, or they, they're not quite true run-of-river because you have some little bit of storage ability, but for the most part, you don't. Right. right? So they, they basically, it depends on the flow of water through the river at any given time. Okay. Okay. And, and so is this is this a problem that we lack the sophistication to integrate these new power types with our, within our existing grids? Or are these two types of power just simply incongruous between the baseload yeah, and these? They don't, they don't work well together, right? So, I mean, it, it's easy enough to put in 20, 20, 20% of your, uh, um, your load can be supplied by wind. But if you start to go to the to the degree that they want to go, where it's almost all from wind and solar, then you've got major problems. Okay, so the, okay. The, so the, the thinking in the profession is that maybe at 30%, you can bring in 30% penetration of renewables of that kind. Okay, um, that's- and After that's... that, it becomes a real mess and, and you really lose control of your, um, of your system. So that that's because of uh, optimization. I mean, at this point, we're kind of in the wild west of, of trying to push this paradigm as far as it can go. And it looks like 20 right. or 30% integration is the point where everything makes the most sense economically and, and right. has the, to greatest yeah. and benefit. And it's going to depend on the kind of grid you have. For example, in BC, it makes no sense at all to have wind power. Okay. What you're doing is replacing hydro. Right, right. All right. In Alberta, you've got all that coal and and gas and 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 that then it makes some sense to have some wind and they also have good wind regimes but then you need to have storage now the best storage of course for alberta is bc <laughs> you know but they they can't seem to get together very well on uh on agreeing how to share that rent because what happens is you create a rent there's a benefit a profit if you like 
and that, uh, you know, the provinces have to share that. So Alberta says, well, you know, this deal is not very good for us. Uh, we can put in a gas plant as opposed to having, you know, you store our, our energy. Interesting. And that, that creates some problems. So sure. one of the problems was that we had a transmission line between Alberta and BC that's rated at 1200 megawatts. But there was so much problem on the Alberta side that uh, with regards to imports that it was uh, it was only rated at about 800 or 850. All right, because of the but those problems are being resolved so that they can do it at 1200, but they don't sell that much back and forth as you would expect. Uh, despite the wind and, and coal, because, you know, coal, we were selling, Alberta was selling to BC during the night because Albertans heat with gas. So you don't need the electricity for, for home heating. So what was happening was to prevent these coal-fired power plants from going down and then coming back up in the morning, they basically just sold that extra electricity to British Columbia. Yeah. Uh, okay. 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 And that was happening long before these issues of, uh, of renewables and that kind of stuff came into into play. But Alberta was losing money on that because they would sell almost dump it for free, okay, to BC, and then BC would charge them big bucks when uh, when they needed it at peak hours. Right. Right. And, and that's where the rents come out. Yeah, and, and, and it seems that, you know, in my research and, and trying to understand this whole concept, that the, the power grids and the way that the power is distributed and the various components that contribute to that, as well as the pricing structures and so forth or incentives, I mean, it's very, very complex. And I think it's, you know, the it's, it's a bit childish to think that we're just going to replace what we have with some wind and solar and it's just going to be, uh, you know, walk in the park. Right, right. You're absolutely correct on that. That is not a walk in the park and it's not going to work. Yeah. And if you look at, at, at Canada as a whole, and you, you track what's happened in terms of production, you know, and you look at the total load, and, and right below it, guess what's being, what's uh, being produced to meet that load? Mainly hydro, not fossil fuels. And fossil fuels are actually quite low. Nuclear is even higher than fossil fuels. So basically, when we're talking about getting rid of coal in Canada today, we're talking about hurting uh, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and maybe New Brunswick and Nova right. Scotia. Right. Those right. are the, the provinces that would bear the brunt of that. And and but on a on a national scale, those non-renewables are a very very small proportion of our total use of electricity. And, and Canada is in a uh, bit of a unique situation, I believe, in terms of how we gen like we're very hydro reliant. We are very hydro reliant. Yeah. Whereas, uh, you know, particularly the U.S., I mean, they're looking at gas and coal as kind of their it would be the opposite for them. Uh, compared right. to they, they, In the Pacific Northwest, they have quite a bit of hydro. But other than that, and don't forget hydro. I mean, the fight for Site C was unbelievable. So can you imagine trying to increase the amount of hydro you're producing? Environmental well, will fight you every inch of the way. 
Sure. And I mean, I think the, the issue with Site C is, you know, pro- there's probably many issues there, including the geotechnical instability. Right. Um, and the, the, you know, their own numbers are showing that the, the, the power produced will cost somewhere in the $130 a megawatt range, which is, you know, you can buy power from the Columbia inter- Interchange at 30, 30, $30 to $35. It's simply not economic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. But we're going to need it if we're going to go to electric vehicles. Sure. Well, the, the, it's interesting. There was a study that came out of the Netherlands where there, the government tasked uh, a committee to research, uh, you know, what would it require for the Netherlands to go full renewables. And the committee came back and said, well, all the known resources in the world will be required to power the 17 million right. folks that are in the Netherlands. So yeah, right. you know, it, it's not a it's not a realistic target as you know, as much as uh, Tesla would like you to believe it is. It simply is. It's an impossibility. Right. Yeah, no, I'd agree. I think I've seen that study. I've read just a little bit of it. Yeah, I, I mean, it's what, was that the one that was was that the one that was done for the EU? Yes, yes, it was. It's part okay. part of the EU sustainability. I mean, it's and it's you know, it's very it's very apparent and very glaring. You know, if if a small right. nation like the Netherlands can't go one hundred percent renewable, or if but they do, totally ignored though. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And this, this is, you know, part of my objective with the program here is to inject a bit of realism into these arguments. Yeah. Where you know, it's it's great as an idealistic twenty-something-year-old that's trying to save the planet, and you know what? Hey, uh, I'm a I'm a, a passionate fly fisherman and conservationist. Always have been. Uh, yeah. I left I left the forest industry because I didn't like what I saw going on. I didn't want to be attaching my name to plans that made no sense. And uh, but on the same same side of that, you know, we we can't be talking about things which are impossible and cannot come to into existence and will be to the detriment of 95 percent of the people on Earth. It just doesn't make any sense. Right. Right. Yeah. So does the carbon tax have any effect on these various uh, systems coming in to the power grid? You know, uh, a colleague of mine, if I if I can, if I got this right. He he did a study to look at the carbon tax, and he found that it had no impact. Mm, okay. Simply or because very little impact. I don't think it's going to have a huge impact, other than it's a big another tax grab for the government. Yeah. So other than the ratepayer, there's going to be no change. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then, if we're, if we're serious about the carbon tax, we also have to tax electricity because we assume that it's all hydro. But as I mentioned, some of it at night is coal-fired power coming from Alberta. Sure. Well, I think in in on my uh, BC Hydro bill, they hit you with the carbon tax. Actually, sorry, that would be that would be the gas bill. I mean, I've uh, through the winter time. Uh, run maybe two hundred and fifty to two hundred seventy five dollars on my gas bill, and fifty of that is carbon tax. Right. Uh, well, so you know, what are you going to do? Cho- you, you choose not to heat your home. I mean, that's a. It's not right. realistic. Not, not realistic exactly. in Canada. Yeah, yeah it's not exactly. realistic. Yeah. 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 And, and then, in fact, that's a problem in the UK because they're putting in these taxes, and then uh, you know these people are can't afford it. You know, they're at the margin to begin with. And they, they have a home that's not uh, very, you know, uh, efficient and uh, they can't afford to fix their home to make it more efficient. And yet they uh, have to, you know, they're being driven into poverty. 
Yeah. And uh, one of my former guests, uh, Dr. Nemeth, uh, she had lived in Germany with her family for some time. And she commented that her electricity bill was more than her mortgage in Germany. And I think that's uh, the case yeah. for many people there. And that's, I mean, that's just, it doesn't make any sense at all. No, it doesn't make any sense. It's, uh, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. If, you know, I, I, I mean, if you're thinking of buying a big home and you're worried about this tax, if we're going to hit $170 per ton of CO2, uh, you better think about the size of home you're going to buy. Sure, sure. Uh, so do, do you have a quantitative comparison of the capital costs per installed megawatt of the various electric, electricity generating systems? And, and you know, Yeah, I do. I do, but not handy. Okay. But the one thing, they calculated on what's called the levelized cost of electricity. Okay. So they basically take the cost of um, building a new, new structure a new plant say and then they look at the operating costs your uh, operating and maintenance costs over the years and then they use an assumption about the capacity factor to determine how much uh, how long and how much you're going to produce and based on that they come up with this levelized cost of electricity and if you look at those numbers you find that uh, uh, coal is fairly it's not that high depending on coal price but wind and solar have gone down over the years and some people have questioned that that probably isn't correct but it doesn't matter in my models i can make that as low as i possible it's the cost that it imposes on the other part of the grid that's really the high cost of using uh wind and solar and, and that boils down to the problem of the intermittency right and that boils down precisely to the problem of that intermittency and the variability in, in power that comes from those sources. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The only renewable that's uh, that doesn't have that problem, of course, is biomass. So these wood okay. panels. Right. But it has other problems. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And and on that subject then, with, with the, the biomass, I mean, we're kind of uh, led to believe that that could be the panacea of, of or maintaining our carbon cycle above ground carbon cycle. Um, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, we, we did a paper on that a number of years ago, and, and we found that the amount of wood required is so enormous that, uh, first off, environmentalists wouldn't go for it. Uh, and, and number two is, strangely enough, it would reduce lumber prices. How's that? Well, <laughs> pardon me. Uh, if you're going to take wood out of the out of the forest, the the best use for that wood is to make lumber. Okay, and uh, I, I know that the folks who uh, who think of using wood pellets or creating wood pellets are thinking of uh, you know residuals from lumber production and and uh, waste uh, on the forest floor, that kind of thing. And and as a forester, you know, I, I was once approached by the UK consulting firm if I would be interested in a project. And the thing that they were looking at, and this was quite some years ago, they were looking at how much wood biomass would you get from sawmill residues in British Columbia? How much would you get if you took the course woody material off the forest floor and how much would you get if you took the coarse and fine woody material off the forest floor and i'm going they have no clue at all as to how we harvest here <laughs> <laughs> 
or or the distances from civilization where those exactly are. or the distances right and the cost of that so uh but but that's the idea so basically the argument is most of it's going to come from re residuals from lumber production well if you're going to produce these trees for making lumber and you want so much that you're going to fire up all these coal-fired uh, biomass burning uh, electricity assets, uh, you'd have to harvest a lot more commercial timber than you do now, which of course means a lot more lumber into the market, in which case the price of lumber would go down, mm. which is probably, right now, is probably not a bad idea given that lumber has gone up four times. Yeah, it's incredible. What it was, yeah, it used to be, I mean, if we look at the, uh, Softwood Lumber Agreement, if the price of lumber went above $355 per thousand board feet, then uh, we wouldn't have to pay any tariffs on it to the U.S. The U.S. wouldn't charge us any tariffs because the price was below that. Now it's at 1600 Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've never seen that in my lifetime. I mean, uh, up until no. this point, we were at sort of a three fifty, and, you know, $400, the mill owners were gleefully rubbing their hands together. So Right. I don't know what's causing it. I've asked a couple of people uh, who supposedly know, and, and their argument was a shortage of logs in British Columbia and overcapacity that you didn't have enough capacity to uh, to mill the lumber in the U.S., in the U.S. South. Mm, interesting. I know. Well, well, I know um, in... 1819, we like uh, 2018, 2019, we lost probably a dozen mills across BC because of the, the economics were so poor. So maybe the, the folks that are left, uh, you know, there is a bit of a glaring uh, yeah. lack of sawing capacity. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, demand is up, but not that. It hasn't doubled or tripled or anything like that. No, no. Anyway, and of course... Just just to dial back to the comment that the UK group said about, you know, harvesting the, the fines, the residue. I mean, that's also an ecological disaster. You know, we require oh, yeah. that material to build our soils and, and retain moisture yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. So that's... Uh, we don't even want to take the coarse woody material out because of that. Sure, sure. And I, and I know uh, uh, my colleague, Michelle Connolly from uh, Conservation North up in Prince George, they've got a real battle on their hands uh, trying to keep the forest companies out of some of those what I would call lower value old growth. I mean, the on a timber perspective, I mean, there's there's the ecological value and the water, the water filtration and storage capacity certainly right. is, is is very right. high. Um, and they're you know they're fairly low productivity sites, which you know there may not be another harvest there for 150 or 200 years. And right. also, when when you look at that carbon cycle in a forest, uh, when you clear a setting. There's a long period of, of carbon um, off-gassing as things decompose, and yeah. it's probably not until years 45 or 50 where that stand is at a point where it's actually a, a sequestering carbon again. I mean, not right. that I'm concerned about carbon, but if the argument is to prevent you know this increase in carbon from the air to prevent runaway warming, then taking our forest to burn in a, in a plant makes no sense. Right. Right. So, yeah, I think many people are agreeing that biomass is not the way to go. A little bit, you know, uh, additional biomass, for example, uh, at one time, remember, we used to burn all this stuff in those, um, what do they call those beehive kind of things? Sure. You know, yeah. We used to burn the sawmill waste and that, and now we use it to generate electricity, which makes sense. 
Yeah, of course, of course. And you know, I, and I'm not opposed to plantation forestry where oh, you know, no. we have fast-growing poplars or alders that are being you know right. rotated on a realistic you know 20 to 30 year time horizon, like Scott Paper does for toilet paper with their right. poplar stands. Uh, but to go into uh, an old growth setting which has other values, um, that just doesn't make any sense. No, no, I agree. I you agree. Know, kind of solving one problem and creating another. Yeah. Yeah. So when we look at all this, you know, who benefits and who loses as uh, more of this unreliable renewable enters our grid? Well, the beneficiaries, of course, are those who are manufacturing these uh, wind turbines and uh, and who have contracts to sell that kind of power to the government. Basically, that's who they're selling to. All right. And they're getting a guaranteed price for it. And that price is usually higher than what the price is at the wholesale level for electricity on a per kilowatt hour basis or something. So that's so essentially a, there, there's essentially a subsidy in there um, that is that is offsetting some of those costs or guaranteeing uh, a price point for those producers. Right. And, yep. and, and again, the rate payer is the one who is ultimately held, holds the burden of that. Yeah. And and you see these large companies are now getting into these these uh, they've rebranded themselves from uh, you know oil oil companies to uh, energy companies. Right, right. All right, because they they see how lucrative all these subsidies are. Wow, that's it, right? I mean, it's it's a wealth transfer. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So and then you know I guess in, in to conclude this section here, you know, can renewables uh, effectively replace fossil fuels? No, they can't replace them. They can help. You know, the situation in terms of CO two emissions. Uh, they can produce some electricity that's uh, that's cheaper, and that's beneficial. But there's a limit to what they can do. Sure. Uh, and, and, and you know, you, you, your you number recognize that limit. Yeah. And so your number of that 20 to 30 percent uh, addition to yeah. the grid from your calculations and your research, that seems to be a, an acceptable level. Right. That's about an acceptable level. And if you go much beyond that, you're starting to run into huge problems and really high costs. Yeah. And, and again, you know, we, we see those problems manifesting in the Australian grid and right. all the problems that they're yeah. having. Yeah. See, the thing you've got to watch out for, like when you talk about a carbon tax, the, the idea behind the carbon tax is to uh, reduce carbon emissions down the road. Uh, but the problem is that that the government is using the carbon tax and then over and above that, they're trying to deal with, uh, you know, uh, these credit carbon credit markets. And they're they're subsidizing certain things like electric cars, which may be a disaster down the road. We've, we've seen that before where government subsidizes things and it turns out to be the worst thing they could have done. Never. Never. Oh, that's right. As Reagan says, I'm here for, I'm with the government. I'm here to help. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, 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 I'll defer on that one. Uh, so how did we arrive in your opinion that this sort of present day mainstream anti-carbon climate narrative? That's that's a good question. I think I think it's been taken over by the social media and and the media itself. They they translate anything that you say into you know the worst disasters coming our way kind of thing. And and maybe it's an attitude uh, you know that's currently 
somehow gripping our society and it's uh you know this new green deal and socialism marxism whatever name you want to give it all right they did there's just this hatred for capitalism and uh i'm not sure that's very healthy either you know if we look at uh what was done in the soviet union what was done in uh in venezuela more recently and you know are we headed that way? That's a bigger concern, I think. And and I think that this whole global warming thing is just feeding into it. Yeah, yeah. There's a, uh, I would, I'll, I'll, when we get off air here, I'll email you that report that uh, Dr. Nameth produced, uh, which covers some of that uh, subject yeah. matter, which is essentially, you know, NGOs and, and um, institutions around the world that have, um, affected uh, Alberta's energy policy in particular and trying to shut down the oil sands. And I, right. I just heard uh, Kevin O'Leary on a, um, a newscast about two weeks ago, and I you know, didn't even recognize the guy. He was he was saying he's getting out of um, oil and gas uh, almost exclusively. He's moving away from pipelines and uh, he's uh, boycotting or getting out of Bitcoin because the Chinese mine it with coal-powered coal uh, electricity. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it's just he's, he's turned into this kind of, you know, what used to be a very, very right-leaning conservative guy to, you know, the direct opposite end, uh, kind of a, a woke joke. It's, it's uh, shocking. Yeah, yeah. I, I, but this is a bigger problem that, you know, doesn't deal with this whole CO2. I mean, it's part of the, the issue, but um, yeah. Yeah. It's a bit one of those, you know, look over here while we're doing something in the background and we're d deflecting yeah. attention. Away. Yeah. Yeah. So w what's the underlying motivation then for this warmest extremist messaging? I really don't know. I, I think sometimes I think there's a, there's a group. And, and it may not be the majority of these, uh, what we'll call warmistas or whatever, uh, <laughs> climate movement, uh, that really thinks that, um, you know, our society has gone overboard in its consumption. And there may be some truth to that. I, I think there is some truth to that. If you think that uh, back in 1950, an average home uh, was a thousand square feet. All right. Now an apartment isn't a thousand square feet and an average home runs you know, 2,400 to 3,000 square feet. You know, we used to have a home with one washroom. Maybe some of the richer people had two. Now there's homes, you know, four or five bathrooms, uh, you know, and, and that's sort of indicative of how we've progressed over the years. And there's probably a thinking that, you know, we're consuming too much. And that may very well be the case. All right. Uh, so, you know, it wouldn't hurt for us to reduce our standard of consumption a little bit. But other than that, I'm not sure what's driving uh, some of the people. Interesting. Yeah, and I would agree. I and mean, it's certainly our, our consumptive patterns, certainly when we were when we were children compared to children today in terms of, uh, you know, the the selection and demand or expectations they have of how many toys and gadgets. And I mean, it's right. uh, yeah. radically different. Way different. Way different. Um, so that for some that would play a role, but for others, I'm not sure. I think it's, you know, they're, they want global government. They want government to solve all their problems. They, you know, uh, they think that a utopia is a government, not recognizing that the people in government are economic agents who do what they want to do. They pursue their own goals as opposed to the goals that you want them to pursue. Sure. 
Sure, absolutely. And then is this also perhaps a struggle over or a struggle for control rather over the multi-trillion dollar energy sector and a control over modern society? Yeah, there's probably that. But remember who controls the the biggest oil companies are not BP and Shell and Exxon. They're those uh, nationally owned companies in uh, in various countries like Russia, um, in uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran, all those countries, huge, huge companies that produce way more oil and gas than uh, than any of the private sector companies. Mm. Uh, and I guess that that comment is more maybe a, a direction between, um, you know, again, with China's uh, push to produce all these renewables, particularly the manufacturing and processing of those rare earth metals. Right. Um, you know, are, are they as uh, you know, the, is the CCP looking for global power dominance? I, I would think so. Yeah. Why wouldn't they? I mean, we're giving it to them. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you take electric cars, for example. Uh, the batteries currently come from China. Sure. All right. And then the question is, uh, you know, are they going to give us rare earth minerals that they manufacture and uh, or produce? And maybe China will just say, no, we're going to just tax. We're going to have an export tax that's so big. We'll just produce the cars here in uh, in China. Sure. Sure. I mean, I, I like to I like to follow the money on these these kind of uh, questions. Right. And, you know, when, yeah. when when all roads lead back to the CCP in terms of their control over those processing elements, as well as their influence on the U.N. and, and on and it goes, it just sort of right. seems, you know, it's and again, they've, you know, their their manifesto claims that their ultimate objective is global domination. So, you know, one of the pillars of modern society is is power. Uh, yeah. So why not? Why not go after that? Yeah, no, uh, I think China is uh, could be a problem, but you can't blame them. You know, what you're saying to them, look, we we don't want to manufacture any of this stuff anymore because it emits CO two, but we'll let you manufacture it and we'll just buy it from you. Yeah, and they're going, yeah, yeah we we don't mind that. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll take a monopoly on that, no problem. Yeah, right. And then, you know, they'll agree that in 2060, they'll go to zero uh, carbon emissions, but they know darn well that nobody's yeah. going to make it. So they're going to yeah. go, well, you guys didn't make it. We're not going to do it either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and of course, you know, we, we did mention that earlier in the interview, but, you know, if we actually continue to press on these Paris Climate Accord uh, measures to to reduce the CO2 to the levels and, and these green deals in the states and the EU are adopted, you know, this is really going to be the, our society and our, our culture will look more like pre-industrial revolution society than it does now. Um, which well, probably not, not necessarily. We could just be doing, uh, you know, service sector, period, produce nothing and buy it all from China or from yeah. Indonesia, in India, uh, Vietnam, all those kind of places. Well, until you, uh, you know, we have a cold winter and there's not enough power to generate. And we see the example like in Texas and right. you know, the yeah. cold weather kills more people than warm weather does. And oh, by uh, far, yeah, yeah. Particularly for, I mean, Canada, like the United States obviously has some cold regions, but, you know, Canada is a very cold country. I believe it's actually the coldest country uh, if we look at the the country coldest temperature averages. Yeah. And so with that, you know, we should be concerned about our energy security and the security of our population. And and to me, that involves a, a good baseload power generation, which is reliable 
Um, right. and, and as also, you know, the, the examples that we've covered between uh, uh, the UK and Germany and Australia, the price of power is out of control. And so if we have an aging population in Canada um, that's going to be living on a fixed income and their, their power rates, you know, get into these 30, 30 to 35 cent a kilowatt, um, how are they heating their homes, for instance? You know, that becomes right. a yep. question of do you, do you pay your power bill or your food bill and which one are you willing to uh, um, relinquish? Yeah, right. No, that's true. Yeah, yeah I, uh, I agree with you on that. But remember, global warming benefits two countries more than any other, Russia and Canada. Uh, because of the, uh, the warming. Yeah we're, yeah, we're supposed to get warmer, right? I mean, our north would then be, if the story is correct, I'm not convinced it is, but then the north would be open seas. Uh, you know, we'd be able to ship everything we want through the north, through... Um, the Hudson Bay through Inuvik, I don't know where, and the, the Russians too. They, you know, all this transportation would no longer go through Panama Canal or, or the Suez Canal, but would just come across the north. We'd be better. We'd benefit our. We'd grow crops much better. Crops we could grow corn then, for example, which we can't now, except in certain areas. That would be a huge benefit to us. If it's actually happening and not going the way. If it's actually happening the way the story is, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so what areas of research are you presently pursuing or, or planning to pursue as uh, the well, time goes forward here? we're looking at, uh, at uh, carbon in forests and to see if that could possibly be a solution. Well, you know, the, uh, we're basically looking at Nordhaus's DICE model and seeing how we could... Uh, you know, what's happening with taxes and, and how high should those taxes be under different assumptions. Uh, we're also looking at, um, at the BC and Alberta grids in more detail to see if we can uh, store uh, electricity in British Columbia uh, that's produced wind and, and solar in, in Alberta, and even looking at uh, pump hydro as a storage device. So oh, these like, are all the technical things that we're enjoying with, uh, you know, a bunch of my students and I were even thinking of, you know, what happens with nuclear power? Uh, could we make Alberta into an energy capital by using nuclear power to get the mm -hmm. oil out of the tar sands and maybe sell excess power over these high uh, voltage direct um, current transmission lines down into California and make some money that way? Uh, yeah, there's all kinds of things that we're kind of looking at in the energy field. And then on the side, I'm doing some agricultural economics as well. Yeah, that's good. And and on that agricultural side, uh, I've done quite a bit of uh, research into the whole regenerative model and the fact that, you know, a lot of our grasslands and agricultural lands uh, historically prior to human intervention were carbon sequestration uh, and quite quite significant, you know, one to two tons yeah. per, per yeah. hectare. Yeah. Um, and that seems to be missing from these uh, discussions. You know, we, we talk about planting trees, but we don't want to look at our agricultural practices, which, you know, also in the U.S., some of the researchers are saying there's 60 to 80 growing cycles left of soil before there's a real problem. Yeah, I, I wouldn't agree with that. That's a little overboard. But I, I do agree that you can store it in soils. The problem is you could spend 10 years doing zero till. And, and you get all this carbon, but one one year or two years after, when you stop zero tilling, so for the farmer, he might say, well, you know, I need to plow it through one time. Well, you lose all that uh, 
CO2. And we did a, a meta-analysis a number of years ago looking at studies that said how much carbon were you getting through uh, various tillage practices. And we found that it depended on how deep you measured the carbon. Mm. So in other words, if you were plowing, you were sending that, um, that um, top material, the uh, what, what do you call that again, the straw and all that stuff. You were sure, like the, 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 the silage or the, the residue. Yeah, you, you were sending it really deep into the soil, whereas it wouldn't decay there. And if you measured it deep enough, then you had more carbon in the soil than if you measured, say, just the top little part. Mm. All right. So if you went down to and slightly below the plow layer, you actually had more carbon than if you only looked at, uh, say, half the plow layer. Mm. Okay. Because a lot of the a lot of the stuff that you leave behind the trash from from combining will decay and enter the atmosphere, whereas if you plow it immediately, it goes under. Uh, okay. So you know, there's all these questions. Uh, so I'm a little bit reluctant, but I do agree that if you convert agricultural land, cropland that you're plowing and producing, you know, wheat, let's say, and you convert that back to uh, pasture, permanent pasture, then you get more soil carbon, quite a bit more. Sure. Or I guess more of a more of a rotational yeah. system where... And, and if we look at the Palliser Triangle, for example, in Western Canada on the prairies, and that probably should never have been brought into into production, into agricultural production. Just left it as uh, grazing land. You know, one person said we should just call it a buffalo's common or something like that. But you could graze cattle on that, and it would be grass-fed cattle instead of uh, beef being produced in a wood in a, a feedlot. Feedlot. You know, in a feedlot. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. You know, some of those things would would help. I think. Right, right, yeah, and that. So, yeah, to to me, the agricultural side of things has been left out of the equation, and I think it needs right. to be uh, looked because at because it's more. a bit sensitive, right? Well, there's uh, there was an interesting uh, Zoom call uh, end of last week there um, uh, from agricultural organization in the U.S. Which, which agriculture has been fingered as a as a you know net emitter of CO two, uh, and of course uh, as we as we talked about in the in the UK you know the, the farmers are being encouraged to plant solar panels instead of crops, yeah. and uh, right. you know that's really at the detriment to everyone. Um, whereas we can look to be a net sink for agricultural operations, um, especially we we start to moderate between field right. crops and grazing and uh, get some of those uh, larger herbivores onto the ground. And this right. is good models. I mean, the, the Rodale Institute, Savory Institute has been doing some pretty good work. Uh, yeah. Rodale has, I think, 30 or 35 years of data uh, now showing. And I guess one of the big arguments was that without plowing or these tillage systems, the yields would be less. And that's also been shown not to be true unless you have very cold or wet soil conditions. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it also requires a lot more chemicals. Uh, in terms of what herbicides or what have you, herbicides in particular, yeah, 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 which is uh, another another problem we're facing. Which is another problem, yeah. yeah. And yeah. remember, the Dutch right now are are looking at reducing N2O, so reducing their nitrogen on on uh, nitrogen fertilizer, and right. thereby reducing the N2O that goes into the atmosphere. And then N2O is a uh, greenhouse gas. Okay. So, okay. yeah. But remember, the Dutch are the second largest, get this, second largest exporter of agricultural products in the world after the U.S. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's amazing when you fly out of Amsterdam there and you see the sea of uh, hothouses on the neighbor yeah. on, the, on the, the landscape there. It's impressive. They've uh, really been able to maximize their uh, their land base. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Professor Van Kooten, if you go back in time and speak with yourself with as a young eighteen or twenty year old uh, gentleman, uh, any what advice would you have for that person, given uh, what you know now? I don't know. I can't remember that how far back. <laughs> Oh, that's good. Um, and I probably, if, if, I probably should have stayed in in physics when I was doing it, okay. I, I left because I I couldn't keep up because of sports. Okay. You know, so uh, what uh, what sports were you involved with? Well, I was doing judo at the time. Oh, okay, okay. What so, uh, what level did you get to? You were you were uh, competing and yeah, I was competing nationally. Okay, okay. So well, it was fun. If, if but you I, fat- I have a daughter who uh, who went into physics, and I realized that I never spent enough time doing physics, and she did. Ah, yes. And, uh, yeah, she graduated and now did a PhD in physics. And I had another daughter doing engineering. And uh, same thing, right? You need to put more time in than I had at school. Right, right. Yeah. And I think a lot of students don't realize that. Uh, they go to school and they have part-time jobs, sometimes that border on full-time, and then they have a full-time uh, load. You can't do that. Yeah. If you want to succeed in your field, you've got, uh, you know, it's a, you can have a part-time job, but that's it. Yeah. You know, a few yeah. hours a week, 10 hours at max, and, and other than that, it's got to be studying. Yeah, yeah. Very, very demanding fields. Very demanding fields, yeah. Yeah. So, well, that's great. Uh, so, if if listeners would like to learn more about you and your work, uh, direct the, would I direct them to the the UVic page? Yeah, to the UVic page, or and that'll direct them to my other pages. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And and so you, I've only seen the one other site that you have the your sort of personal personal site. Is there anything else? Yeah, it's a it's vkooten.net. Okay. And uh, I work. I keep track of that one more than any other. But okay. I'm not a big, I'm not a blogger. I, I tried that for a while, too time consuming. Sure. Uh, I tried I tried Facebook, too time consuming. Uh, <laughs> in retrospect, it's probably a good thing. You know, I may have been canceled. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And that, those sites both have a list of your publications and book chapters yeah. and all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. and interesting links too on that uh, that site. Okay. Okay. Well, sir, it's been a fantastic uh, time here chatting up to you. Uh, I appreciate all your information and uh, all the work that you're doing. Um, I'll send you a couple links there uh, as we discussed. And uh, okay. if, if you can send me that, uh, I think it was the, the, the Schmiel um, information, um, that would be yeah, interesting. I've a book by his uh, Grand Transitions. Grand Transitions. Okay. Yeah. I can't remember. I've I've got an e-reader now, and I was reading it in my e-reader, so I, they don't tell you what the page number is. Okay, okay. I'll go. I'll dig that up and have a look for it. Yeah. Excellent, sir. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And okay. uh, if yeah. if, if uh, anything comes up that you'd like to chat about, you let me know, and we'll get you back on the air. Okay, sounds good. I got to get thank to you. the U.S. first. There you go. Off you go. <laughs> thank you, sir. Have a great weekend. Okay. Yeah. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye bye. Bye bye.